0: All right, again, just thank you for tuning in. Uh, we know that this is not the norm, and, and again, we're just doing uh, our best to just continue to be in the Word and to preach the good news and bring the Gospel to as many people as we can. So, this morning I have the, the privilege, and I'm excited to, to just preach yet again. Hang on one second, let me, my iPad won't turn on. There we go. All right, so I just want to ask a question. If you've ever traveled outside of the United States, you know that you need one of these. And I don't know if you can see it or not, but this, this is a passport. Now, a passport is a travel document that's issued by a country's government to its citizens that certifies the identity and the nationality of its holder. And I'll pause right here. This is actually not my passport. I had to borrow it from my mom. Uh, Steffi and I have both not traveled out of the U.S. Uh, yet. Hopefully one day we will but I just have to be honest that this isn't mine. <laughs> but uh, these are essential for traveling because there are border laws. We can't wake up one day and be like, man, I'm just going to walk over to Canada or I'm going to walk down to Mexico. I'm just going to do it. I don't need anything. No, you, you can't just decide to do that. There, you'll be stopped by border patrol and they'll ask to see your passport. Again, a passport identifies who you are and who you're a citizen of. But did you know this? that citizens are granted certain privileges that non-citizens are not afforded. And just looking at the U.S. passport, on the very first page, you open it up, this is what you read. The Secretary of State of the United States of America hereby requests all whom it may concern to permit the citizen of the United States named herein to pass without delay, without any hindrance. So as citizens of the U.S., when we are traveling and we come back from an international flight, our passport gets us through security in a speedily, rapid way. We don't have to wait in the line because that's one of our rights as a citizen of the the United States. And this little paragraph continues and says this, And in case of need, to give all lawful aid and protection. So we as citizens have protection from our government, or by our government's help, we have protection. And we also again, have, have aid if we get in trouble. So I didn't really know this when it came to passports that we actually, there's like written laws in here that, that ha- we have rights by, by, again, being a citizen of the United States. And there's even a process to become a citizen of the United States, and you must swear an oath publicly. So we'll just, I know there's dual citizenship, so we'll kind of table that for now. We're not going to talk about that. But to become a, a, a citizen of the United States, you have to swear an oath publicly. And I'm not going to read the oath because it is a little long, but some of the key things in it says this, I renounce all allegiance to foreign states, to foreign powers, to foreign princes and governments. I will support and defend the Constitution from both foreign and domestic enemies. And then it, it ends with, I will bear true faith and true allegiance to the United States. So when you become a citizen of the U.S., what happens is you become a foreigner Of every other country. And if we put that spiritually, and if we just kind of crank that knob to to the the extra level, according to the Bible, if we are citizens of heaven, we become foreigners of this earth. This earth is not our home. So, as Christians, Jesus' resurrection has proved that he is our true Savior, that he is God. When we put our trust and faith in him alone, we become citizens of heaven. As we celebrate and remember his resurrection this morning, I want to focus on a simple question. And if I had to title today's message, this would be the title. What are the marks of a true citizen of heaven? What are the marks of a true citizen of heaven? If you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 to 21. A few weeks ago, I looked at the first half, and the analogy Paul used was, as Christians, we run this race. We're running a spiritual race And at the end is the prize of of knowing Jesus and spending an eternity with him, being fully sanctified, being fully like Jesus in heaven, being perfect like Jesus when we get to heaven. So as a little bit of context, this letter, Philippians, was written to the church in Philippi about 30 years after Jesus' resurrection by Paul. Now, Philippi was a Roman colony, which meant that the people there were, were under the Roman law, They were Roman citizens. If you were born in Philippi, you were a Roman citizen. And again, you had these rights uh, under the Roman government that that granted you some pretty favorable things. So um, again, as we read this this section, we're going to see Paul now shifts from, from running a race into being a citizen of heaven. He talks about citizenship because the Philippian people, I think they understand what a citizen means to them because they have these rights under the Roman Empire as citizens. A a pastor put it this way, he said, When when a Philippi person, or a Roman citizen, because they're they're Roman, when they would put their child to bed at night, they wouldn't read them stories of local heroes and of Macedonian heroes, but they'd rather focus on Roman heroes and all the Roman accomplishments and things like that. So again, Philippi was just it was a Roman colony, it was full of just Roman culture. So Philippians three 17 to 21, what are the marks of a true citizen of heaven? Paul says this, Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now even tell you with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So again, what are the marks of a true citizen of heaven? And there's just three of them that I want to go through this morning. Number one, citizens of heaven follow godly examples. Citizens follow godly examples. If you look back at verse 17, Paul says this, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, if you think a moment about children's games, right, what comes to mind immediately is follow the leader. You know, like we're following the leader, the leader, the leader. And and what you do is you follow that leader around all these obstacles. Uh, There's also a game called Simon Says. Or if you've come to the Easter egg hunt that, we used to, that, we, that we've been doing and we couldn't do this year, but we've, we've made a game called Simon Eggs, which is Simon Says with just your little plastic egg as a little prop. But what these games do, these children's games, they teach kids to observe. They teach kids to, to listen carefully and to follow directions. So Paul is, is encouraging the Philippian church to look at him, and he uses this word, us. So that also includes Timothy, It could could include Epaphroditus, their local elders, their local deacons. Look at us and follow our lead. Again, Paul is not being arrogant or boastful when he's writing this. He's not saying, hey, (laughs) look at me. Trust me, hey, I'm not going to steer you wrong. I'm I'm, I'm good. I'm the best. Look at me. We know that he's not being boastful because in verse 12 he says this, "Not not that I have already obtained this, which is sanctification, being perfect, or already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. This whole idea that Paul is saying, I don't boast in my past accomplishments, I don't boast in, my, in the miracles that God allows me to do, but I boast in Jesus Christ and, and the work that he did on the cross. So Paul is saying, look to me, look to us, look at the people who are more mature than you, uh, spiritually, and we're going to talk about this in the next point, but he's also alluding that there are fake citizens in Philippi who are trying to lead the church astray. So he's telling the church, follow me as I follow Christ. Let my faith inspire you to be obedient and be faithful to Jesus. Later in Philippians chapter 4, if you want to turn there, Philippians 4 verses 8 to 9, Paul has this list, this list of things that as Christians we should be thinking about. He says finally brothers whatever is true whatever is honorable whatever is just whatever is pure whatever is lovely whatever is commendable if there's any excellence or if there's anything worthy of praise think about these things but he says this in verse 9 what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me practice these things and God and the God of peace will be with you again he's encouraging the church look to me look to my example now if you think of people who have addictions, if they're going through a program to help them overcome their addictions, they usually have someone who comes alongside of them called a sponsor. And what a sponsor does, it's, it's a person who's been through that same addiction. It's someone who's had a similar experience, but the only thing that's different is they overcame it. They serve as an inspiration and a motivation to those who are currently struggling with that addiction. And I think as Christians, sometimes when we look at Jesus' life, when we read the gospel and see everything that, that he did, I think it gets a little, we get intimidated or, or we get a little discouraged. We, we tend to think sometimes, I can never be that perfect. I can never measure up to Jesus. How am I supposed to just even love my neighbor? How am I supposed to do all these things? Again, when we think and look about to others who follow Jesus and see that they can do it, It's encouraging and it's empowering. So I want us to think of verse 17 this way, as almost like a flow chart, where you have God on the top, Jesus, who's the ultimate authority and the ultimate um, inspiration for our faith and who we should be striving to be like. Under Jesus, then, Paul says, follow godly examples, those who we can look up to who are more spiritually mature and who can help us out, can serve as an inspiration for our own faith. Then under that, we have the Philippian church. Paul tells them to keep their eyes on those who walk. So this question we have to ask is, how do we know who a godly example to follow is? The answer is kind of simple. What we do is we compare them to God's word. We we don't have to guess or hope that we're following somebody and just at the end of of our lives say, oh man, I wish I really hope I made the right choice by, by looking up to this person or by trusting them. We can observe their faith, their conduct, the way they treat others, their life, and ultimately compare it to Jesus, compare it to his word. And it's important to remember, do not make people your savior. Do not make people your savior. Christ alone is our savior. When I was in ministry classes at college, we were taught a simple thing. We were taught in ministry, find a Paul and find a Timothy for your life. And what that means is find a Paul. Find somebody who is more mature than you spiritually. Someone that you can look up to and, and go to in, in times of trouble or maybe you just need some counsel. Go to that person and, and just, again, be discipled by them. And then we're also taught to, to, to get a Timothy. Get someone that we can take under our own wing and disciple and mentor and, and help out and help in their walk. And if you think of the Great Commission, that's discipleship. You have our, our Paul. That person's pouring into us, discipling us, and then you have us discipling somebody else and telling them about Jesus and all about um, just encouraging them to follow him. So again, it's important. Don't make people your savior. Paul's not saying he's the savior. Follow him. He's the complete authority. He's saying, look to me. Look to us. There are people around you that are wanting to lead you astray. Look at us. Follow our lead. So point number one, True citizens follow godly examples. Point number two True citizens of heaven are watchful of enemies. Verses eighteen and nineteen. For many of whom I have told you and now even tell you with tears. I'll just pause there for a minute. Philippians is the book of joy. There I think it's about twelve I think I think twelve times that we're told to, to have joy or to rejoice in Philippians. But now Paul is, is saying he's writing this with tears. It's, it's breaking his heart. He knows the danger that the church is in. He says, For they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. When it comes to following Jesus, the Bible is black and white. There, there's no gray area. In First John, a few months ago, Walter wrote or preached through it, and it seems like at every chapter, John just reminded us of, of two things, of, of being in the light and being in the darkness. There was no in-between where it's like, well, I think I'm a little bit in the dark, but I could be in the light a little bit. First John's clear, you're either children of the light or you're children of darkness. Jesus said it this way, there's two paths. There's a narrow path that leads to a narrow gate, and there's a wide path that leads to a wide gate. The narrow leads to life, and few find it. The wide leads to destruction, and many find it. Again, Jesus is saying, you're either on the narrow or the wide path. You're either going towards life, or you're going towards destruction. And in Philippians, we come across this. You are either in Christ, a citizen of heaven, or you're not in Christ, which makes you an enemy of the cross. And look how Paul describes these people. He says their end is destruction, which means that their end is hell. They're going to spend eternal separation from God, from their creator. And I don't know if you know this, but when Jesus was here on earth, he spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. And you can interpret it however you want, but you can't argue against this idea that you do not want to spend your life in hell. Jesus made it clear it is a place of suffering, it is a place of torment, it is a place of outer darkness. That is not where you want to be. He also says that their God is their belly. Now, that doesn't mean that they literally like, go around, lift their shirt up, and people like, bow down and, and, and you know praise their, their literal stomach. But it's an expression that means having an appetite for human desires. If you look at that next phrase in Philippians chapter 4, he says, um, They glory in their shame with their mind set on earthly things. So they're pursuing earthly desires. Their eyes are fixated down here to their home on earth. It's also an expression that means they, they lack self control. They just have a desire and they go after it. They have this hunger and they satisfy it however they want. Now, Paul calls them enemies of the cross because it directly contradicts what Paul tells us back in Philippians 2 about having the mi- or really what the mindset of Jesus was, the mindset of, of what the cross is. In verse 7 of Philippians chapter 2, it says that Jesus emptied himself. He denied himself. That's the complete opposite of having uh, no self-control. He, he had control. He had self-control. He, he emptied himself. He denied himself. He took the form of a servant. And to put it in perspective, in, in the Gospel of John, it says, in the beginning was the Word of God, and the Word was with God, and uh, am I saying that right? Yeah, I think I'm saying that right. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Sorry, I got a little confused. So from the very beginning, we see that Jesus is God. He's at creation. To put it this way, the creator became the creation. He humbled himself to being killed by his own creation. He took the form of a servant, obedient to the point of death, and that's the mind that Jesus had, humbling himself, showing grace to others, showing love to others. In Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus is, is talking on the Sermon on the Mount, he says this, He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. So Jesus is saying, don't look at the earthly desires, but look up. Seek first his kingdom. Seek first heaven. And Jesus specifically is talking about anxiety at this time. He's saying, look at the birds. Look how they gather, or look that they don't gather in barns. They don't store food up for themselves. Simply God provides for them. He says, "Look at the grass around you on these on these grassy hills. look at the flowers that cover them. the beauty of those flowers, which one day are alive but the next they're thrown into the furnace. The Israelites would go out, pick a flower, throw it in a, in a furnace that they made for that day to cook their their daily bread. So he says, jesus says, look at, look at the care God has for the birds. look at the care that He has for the fields that even the flowers get destroyed. He says, do not you think your heavenly Father will provide even the more for you. And he says at the very end of of that, do not be anxious, don't be anxious about what you'll wear, what you'll eat, all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God. That's the mind of Christ, kingdom-minded, not living for the earth. So again, these enemies of the cross, they've established their citizenship here on earth. You know, they have their passport, and in their passport, it's marked citizen of earth. That's where their hope is. That's, where they, that's what they live for. They put themselves first, not willing to submit to Christ. And I think it, it's important to, to note, when Paul's writing this letter, he's having a group of people in mind. These enemies of the cross, he's not too specific as to who they are, but we can make a pretty good guess. There's, they're either one or two groups, and they're both on different end, ends of the spectrum, these enemies of the cross. On the one end over here, you have the Judaizers, And they were very legalistic. They preached the importance of following the Mosaic law found in the Old Testament. And they demanded that in order for you to be saved, in order for you to be a citizen of heaven, you had to be physically circumcised to be saved. And if I could boil their philosophy down to this, it it was Jesus plus the Old Testament law equals salvation. And that's the one group on one side that Paul might be addressing. On the other hand, they have the Gnostics, who are anti-law. They believe that all physical matter is evil. Your body, the trees outside, the birds, any, any pet that you may have, they believed that was evil. But your spirit is good. And they preach that you need to surrender your spirit to God, but then you could do whatever you want with your body because it's not redeemable. God doesn't care what you do with your body. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. They're, they're enemies of the cross. If you have to say Jesus plus anything equals salvation, that's heresy. It's Jesus alone. So throughout the book of Philippians, Paul's warning the church of these false teachers. In chapter one, he says, some preach Christ from envy or selfishness, not from goodwill. In in chapter three, he says, look out for the dogs who mutilate their flesh. And then in this verse, he calls them out and says, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. They completely contradict what Jesus did on the cross when he died. Like the Philippians, we need to be watchful of fake citizens. Those who speak the language of the court, but Christ is not their king. There's no allegiance to him at all. And I've heard it said this before, this quote, wherever there is something true, there's eventually going to be something counterfeit next to it. And just think about that for a second. When we look at technology, they have patent laws. They have laws that protect someone's product from being copied and from being maybe copied better or copied worse because, again, we just we, we, whenever there's something true, there's always something counterfeit that comes along next to it. And the FBI, or more specifically the Secret Service, uh, they deal with counterfeit bills, with dealing with, with counterfeit money. So the way that they study and know that a bill is counterfeit is they study what a real bill looks like. Only when you know what the real bill looks like can you detect a counterfeit. And the same is true for citizens of heaven. As we follow godly examples, point number one, as we're watchful of enemies of the cross, point two, we should be comparing them to Jesus and his word. Point three, citizens eagerly wait for a glorious eternity. Citizens eagerly wait for a glorious eternity. Verse 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him, even to subject things to himself. So in this in this verse here, we're told how to wait, and we're told what is waiting for us. So I guess. Kind of point A is how do we wait? According to the NIV version and other versions, it says that we are to wait eagerly, wait eagerly for our Savior. Now, I looked up the word eager, and it tends to be more of a neutral word nowadays. But looking at the, the positive side of, of waiting eagerly, it, it's wanting to do something. It's anticipating or looking forward to that thing. So if I'm kind of standing here like this, and I'm like, yeah, I can't, I can't wait. I'm I'm waiting eagerly. That no, that's not eagerly. If, if I'm waiting eagerly, I'm probably fidgeting a little bit. I'm smiling. Maybe I'm I'm kind of like moving my hands around a bit. And I want you to think of this. Have you ever eagerly waited to go on vacation? You know, maybe you planned it months ahead or a year ahead and every day you're you're counting down the days for vacation. You're eagerly waiting. You're excited. And on the flip side, have you ever been on vacation and then eagerly waited or eagerly wanted to go back home. You know, you, maybe you think, man, I can't wait to sleep in my own bed, in my own house. I can't wait to just go back home. I've thought that before when I was on vacation. I'm sure you have, you have as well. I think eventually we, we all get homesick. You know, we're, we're, we're used to our home. We miss our home. We miss our bed. We miss our friends. We miss our own possessions, just the way that we, we live. And when Stephanie and I were working at Camp Spofford, we were taught to look for signs of, of kids who are homesick. And it's the weirdest thing. They'll just break down and start crying. And you're like, what did I do? What, what happened? Did someone hurt you? Like, what's going on? Did you, did you fall? They're, they just break down emotionally because they, they miss their parents. They miss their homes. As Christians, our true home is in heaven. Our true home is in heaven. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, if you want to flip your page there, towards the end, Paul's addressing these two people, and he says, um, I'll read the whole verse. He says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 72. They go before him and they do miracles. He empowers them to just cast out demons, heal people. And when they return to him, they're kind of feeling kind of prideful and they're saying, man, look at all the things that we did. Look what we get to do. And Jesus says this in Luke 10 verse 20. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Don't rejoice in your authority over the demons but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Citizens of heaven have their names written in the book of life. If you think for a second about Valentine's Day, or if you uh, put a reservation in at a fancy restaurant, you call ahead and your name gets put on a list. That restaurant is expecting you, And also when you arrive, you are expecting that they're expecting you, and they'll have a table set aside for you so that you don't have to wait or that you don't get turned away. The same thing is true in the Bible. In John chapter 14, Jesus tells us, in my Father's house there are many rooms. He also tells us that he's he's went ahead to prepare us a room. So not only are names written in the book of life, do we have a room for us, but, but Jesus prepared it for us, and citizens of heaven Our true home is in heaven, not on this earth. And the resurrection of Jesus, the empty grave, reminds us that we as citizens should be waiting with anticipation, eagerly waiting for the Lamb of God who was sacrificed to return as the Lion of Judah, where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. So wait eagerly. And then the second part of this verse is, we are promised a glorious body in verse 20, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. In the King James Version, it's a little bit more blunt. It says, who will transform our vile body. Our vile body. So, our our lowly body, our vile bodies will be transformed into something better. Our earthly bodies do not last for an eternity. Just look around or just think about your own body. I'm, I'm not 30 yet, but I'm starting to wake up and I get a sore back. And I'm like, man, what the heck did I do? Did I sleep wrong? Or maybe I coughed and I pulled a muscle in my back? Am I that out of shape? Probably. Um, But our bodies, they, they fail us. They become weak. They become fragile over time. We're prone to sickness. We're prone to pain. We lose our hair. We lose our eyesight. We lose our hearing. Our skin becomes wrinkled. These bodies do not last an eternity. But we're promised a new body that will be perfect like Jesus's. And I don't want to focus on what that body is going to look like if we're all going to have six packs and have these these perfect chiseled muscular bodies. I don't want to focus on that. That shouldn't be what we're looking forward to. We should be looking to a, a resurrected perfect body that we get to worship a resurrected perfect Savior in heaven for, for an eternity. So these new, these glorified, these upgraded, these renewed bodies is promised for every citizen of heaven. And if you think about Jesus' resurrection, Stephanie read that story in Matthew uh, chapter 28. And I I read it this past week and I was just kind of going over and looking at it in more detail. I think when we read things you can become numb to the language. So I just kind of read it closer. And I read it as if it was the first time I was reading it. And after the angel tells Mary and Mary to go and tell the disciples, they they come across Jesus. And Jesus says, greetings. He he gives a, a, the King James puts it, he says, all hail. All hail. Or you can translate that to peace be with you. It's a a Jewish greeting, peace be with you. And what they say is, it says, Mary goes down at Jesus' feet and takes hold of his feet. She, she touches his feet, and I was thinking, man, why did she do that? And some people might disagree with this, but as I was just researching it and putting myself in her shoes, I think she was seeing to see if Jesus was physically there with her or if that was a spirit or a figment of her imagination. What she does is she reaches out and she takes hold of his feet and she worships him and gives him praise. Jesus had a physical, bodily resurrection. He didn't come back as a spirit, but he came back in flesh and blood with this new resurrected body, and that's waiting for us in heaven. We are promised a new body. So why do Christians get so excited about Easter? Why do we get so excited about the resurrection? We're reminded that Jesus is our king, that we are his citizens. He is our savior, and we're no longer enemies of God. We are citizens of heaven. And there might be some of you watching or listening today who are not citizens. Maybe some of you are are fake citizens. You're fooling everyone else around you, but know this. God is not fooled. He knows who his citizens are. They're written in the book of life in heaven. There's a room set aside for them, prepared for them. He knows who his enemies are. And the most important question you can ask yourself today is, how do I become a citizen? How do I become a citizen of heaven? Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 to 13. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. As Jesus mentioned, there's, there's two paths. When, when we die, there's two destinations. There's, there's heaven and there's hell. There's life and there's destruction. Jesus needs to be your Lord and your Savior. You can't have one without the other and be a citizen of heaven. You need both. Jesus needs to be your Lord, meaning you say, Jesus, I'm submitting to your will. I'm submitting to your law, to what you say. I'm being obedient. When you tell me to love my neighbor, I'm going to love them. When you tell me to pray for those who persecute me, I'm going to be praying for those. Your way, not my way. I've seen a kind of a meme, or maybe the, the picture of it says, Jesus is my co-pilot. I would say Jesus is my pilot and Jesus is my co-pilot. I'm just the passenger of that airplane. Jesus is completely in control. When you make him the Lord, you are submitting to him and you are giving him the praise and the honor, saying it is your way, it's not my way. Now when he's your savior, what you're saying is I can't do it. I am not good enough for God. I can't save myself. But Jesus came to save me from the punishment that I deserved. He took the cross. He bore the wrath of God so that I wouldn't have to. He had to come and die for me so that I can have peace with him. See, there's nothing we can offer God. We can't buy our way to heaven. We can't do enough good deeds. Some people like to think of salvation as a scale. Guess what? It's not. There's nothing we can do to gain salvation only by trusting in Jesus. Trusting in who he is, in the resurrection of him. That he is Lord of all. That he is the savior. That he is more powerful than sin. And he defeated death. And that he is victorious over sin. Him alone, Jesus alone, defeated sin and death with his resurrection. And that's why as Christians we get so excited. The empty tomb is there to show us that we worship a risen savior. We worship a powerful savior. Someone that we can put our hope in. Someone that we know will never fail us. Again, Jesus proved victorious over our sin, and in him we have complete forgiveness from our sins, and we have peace with God. And I want to encourage us to take some time today to just remember and to reflect on how much God loves you. Even just looking at John three sixteen, that God sent his only son, Jesus, Jesus, to live the perfect life. He sent them because he loves us. He lived without sin. He took the punishment we deserved because of our sin. Our Savior is risen and is reigning on his throne. Are you eagerly waiting to join him in heaven? Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that we just never forget the work that you've done for us. Jesus, I pray that today we can just take some time to reflect on the empty tomb, to reflect that you are more powerful than sin and death itself. Jesus, I pray that we can be encouraged and know that the empty tomb shows us that we are citizens of heaven, that when we put our hope and our faith and our trust in you, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, we're sealed with a promise our name is written in the book of life that we can have eternal life with a new, glorious, resurrected, perfect body worshiping you, our perfect Savior, for an eternity in heaven. Jesus, we just praise you this morning and I pray that we, that we just don't celebrate this once a year, that we can remember this every day of our life, that that tomb is still empty, that you are our Savior. And in your holy and precious name we pray, amen. Did you hit the button?